he hoped she would recognize as a step, a first from his side toward a relationship. And a first it would be. He was no prude, but Rayford had never been unfaithful to Irene. It had plenty of opportunities. He had long felt guilty about a private necking session he enjoyed at a company Christmas party more than twelve years before. Irene had stayed home uncomfortably past her ninth month carrying their surprise tag-along son, Ray Jr. Though under the influence, Rayford had known enough to leave the party early. It was clear Irene noticed he was slightly drunk, but she couldn't have suspected anything else, not from her straight-arrow captain. He was the pilot who had once consumed two martinis during a snowy shutdown at O'Hare and then voluntarily grounded himself when the weather cleared. He offered to pay for bringing in a relief pilot, but Pancontinental was so impressed that instead they made an example of his self-discipline and wisdom. In a couple of hours, Rayford would be the first to see hints of the sun, a teasing palette of pastels that would signal the reluctant dawn over the continent. Until then, the blackness through the window seemed miles thick. His groggy or sleeping passengers had window shades down, pillows and blankets in place. For now, the plane was a dark, humming sleep chamber for all but a few wanderers, the attendants, and one or two responders to nature's call. The question of the darkest hour before dawn, then, was whether Rayford Steele should risk a new, exciting relationship with Hattie Durham. He suppressed a smile. Was he kidding himself? Would someone with his reputation ever do anything but dream about a beautiful woman fifteen years his junior? He wasn't so sure anymore. If only Irene hadn't gone off on this new kick. Would it fade? her preoccupation with the end of the world, with the love of Jesus, with the salvation of souls. Lately she had been reading everything she could get her hands on about the rapture of the church. Can you imagine, Rafe? she exulted. Jesus coming back to get us before we die? Yeah, boy, he said, peeking over the top of his newspaper. That would kill me. She was not amused. If I didn't know what would happen to me, she said, I wouldn't be glib about it. I do know what would happen to me, he insisted. I'd be dead, gone, fini. But you, of course, would fly right up to heaven. He hadn't meant to offend her. He was just having fun. When she turned away, he rose and pursued her. He spun her around and tried to kiss her, but she was cold. Come on, Irene, he said. Tell me thousands wouldn't just keel over if they saw Jesus coming back for all the good people. She had pulled away in tears. I've told you and told you. Saved people aren't good people. They're just forgiven. Yeah, I know, he said, feeling rejected and vulnerable in his own living room. He returned to his chair and his paper. If it makes you feel any better, I'm happy for you that you can be so cocksure. I only believe what the Bible says, Irene said. Rayford shrugged. He wanted to say, good for you. But he didn't want to make a bad situation worse. In a way, he had envied her confidence. 
but in truth he wrote it off to her being a more emotional, more feelings-oriented person. He didn't want to articulate it, but the fact was he was brighter, yes, more intelligent. He believed in rules, systems, laws, patterns, things you could see and feel and hear and touch. If God was part of all that, okay. A higher power, a loving being, a force behind the laws of nature, fine. Let's sing about it, pray about it, feel good about our ability to be kind to others and go about our business. Rayford's greatest fear was that this religious fixation wouldn't fade like Irene's Amway days, her Tupperware phase and her aerobics spell. He could just see her ringing doorbells and asking if she could read people a verse or two. Surely she knew better than to dream of his tagging along. Irene had become a full-fledged religious fanatic, and somehow that freed Rayford to dream without guilt about Hattie Durham. Maybe he would say something, suggest something, hint at something as he and Hattie strode through Heathrow toward the cab line. Maybe earlier. Dare he assert himself even now, hours before touchdown? Next to a window in first class, a writer sat hunched over his laptop. He shut down the machine, vowing to get back to his journal later. At thirty, Cameron Williams was the youngest ever senior writer for the prestigious Global Weekly. The envy of the rest of the veteran staff, he either scooped them on or was assigned to the best stories in the world. Both admirers and detractors at the magazine called him Buck because they said he was always bucking tradition and authority. Buck believed he lived a charmed life, having been eyewitness to some of the most pivotal events in history. A year and two months earlier, his January 1st cover story had taken him to Israel to interview Chaim Rosenzweig and had resulted in the most bizarre event he had ever experienced. The elderly Rosenzweig had been the only unanimous choice for Newsmaker of the Year in the history of Global Weekly. Its staff had customarily steered clear of anyone who would be an obvious pick as Time's Man of the Year, but Rosenzweig was an automatic. Cameron Williams had gone into the staff meeting prepared to argue for Rosenzweig and against whatever media star the others would typically champion. He was pleasantly surprised when executive editor Steve Plank opened with, Anybody want to nominate someone stupid, such as anyone other than the Nobel Prize winner in chemistry? The senior staff members looked at each other, shook their heads, and pretended to begin leaving. Put the chairs on the wagon. The meeting is over, Buck said. Steve, I'm not angling for it, but you know I know the guy, and he trusts me. Not so fast, cowboy, a rival said, then appealed to Plank. You letting Buck assign himself now? I might, Steve said, and what if I do? I just think this is a technical piece, a science story, Buck's detractor muttered. I'd put the science writer on it. And you'd put the reader to sleep, Plank said. Come on, you know the writer for showcase pieces comes from this group. And this is not a science piece any more than the first one Buck did on him. This has to be told so the reader gets to know the man and understands the significance of his achievement. 
like that isn't obvious. It only changed the course of history. I'll make the assignment today, the executive editor said. Thanks for your willingness, Buck. I assume everyone else is willing as well. Expressions of eagerness filled the room, but Buck also heard grumbled predictions that the fair-haired boy would get the nod, which he did. Such confidence from his boss and competition from his peers made him all the more determined to outdo himself with every assignment. In Israel, Buck stayed in a military compound and met with Rosenzweig in the same kibbutz on the outskirts of Haifa where he had interviewed him a year earlier. Rosenzweig was fascinating, of course, but it was his discovery or invention, no one knew quite how to categorize it, that was truly the newsmaker of the year. The humble man called himself a botanist, but he was in truth a chemical engineer who had concocted a synthetic fertilizer that caused the desert sands of Israel to bloom like a greenhouse. Irrigation has not been a problem for decades, the old man said. But all that did was make the sand wet. My formula added to the water fertilizes the sand. Buck was not a scientist, but he knew enough to shake his head at that simple statement. Rosenzweig's formula was fast making Israel the richest nation on earth, far more profitable than its oil-laden neighbors. Every inch of ground blossomed with flowers and grains, including produce never before conceivable in Israel. The Holy Land became an export capital, the envy of the world with virtually zero unemployment. Everyone prospered. The prosperity brought about by the miracle formula changed the course of history for Israel. Flush with cash and resources, Israel made peace with her neighbors. Free trade and liberal passage allowed all who loved the nation to have access to it. What they did not have access to, however, was the formula. Buck had not even asked the old man to reveal the formula or the complicated security process that protected it from any potential enemy. The very fact that Buck was housed by the military evidenced the importance of security. Maintaining that secret ensured the power and independence of the state of Israel. Never had Israel enjoyed such tranquility. The walled city of Jerusalem was only a symbol now, welcoming everyone who embraced peace. The old guard believed God had rewarded them and compensated them for centuries of persecution. Chaim Rosenzweig was honored throughout the world and revered in his own country. Global leaders sought him out, and he was protected by security systems as complex as those that protected heads of state. As heady as Israel became with newfound glory, the nation's leaders were not stupid. A kidnapped and tortured Rosenzweig could be forced to reveal a secret that would similarly revolutionize any nation in the world. Imagine what the formula might do if modified to work on the vast tundra of Russia. Could regions bloom, though snow-covered most of the year? Was this the key to resurrecting that massive nation following the shattering of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics? Russia had become a great brooding giant with a devastated economy and regressed technology.
All the nation had was military might, every spare mark going into weaponry. And the switch from rubles to marks had not been a smooth transition for the struggling nation. Streamlining world finance to three major currencies had taken years, but once the change was made, most were happy with it. All of Europe and Russia dealt exclusively in marks. Asia, Africa, and the Middle East traded in yen. North and South America and Australia dealt in dollars. A move was afoot to go to one global currency, but those nations that had reluctantly switched once were loath to do it again. Frustrated at their inability to profit from Israel's fortune and determined to dominate and occupy the Holy Land, the Russians had launched an attack against Israel in the middle of the night. The assault became known as the Russian Pearl Harbor, and because of his interview with Rosenzweig, Buck Williams was in Haifa when it happened. The Russians sent intercontinental ballistic missiles and nuclear-equipped MiG fighter bombers into the region. The number of aircraft and warheads made it clear their mission was annihilation. To say the Israelis were caught off guard, Cameron Williams had written, was like saying the Great Wall of China was long. When Israeli radar picked up the Russian planes, they were nearly overhead. Israel's frantic plea for support from her immediate neighbors in the United States was simultaneous with her demand to know the intentions of the invaders of her airspace. By the time Israel and her allies could have mounted anything close to a defense, it was obvious the Russians would have her outnumbered a hundred to one. They had only moments before the destruction would begin. There would be no more negotiating, no more pleas for a sharing of the wealth with the hordes of the north. If the Russians meant only to intimidate and bully, they would not have filled the skies with missiles. Planes could turn back but the missiles were armed and targeted. So this was no grandstand play designed to bring Israel to her knees. There was no message for the victims. Receiving no explanation for war machines crossing her borders and descending upon her, Israel was forced to defend herself, knowing full well that the first volley would bring about her virtual disappearance from the face of the earth. With warning sirens screaming and radio and television sending the doomed for what flimsy cover they might find, Israel defended herself for what would surely be the last time in history. The first battery of Israeli surface-to-air missiles hit their...